0: Peace be with you. Peace be with you. If you want to go grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, verses 30 to 41 of Mark chapter 9 verses 30 to 41 of Mark chapter 9. If you're a guest with us, welcome. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We are a local church that treasures Christ and treasures his word. So we very much value uh, the preaching of his word and Part of the way that we seek to do that is, is by um, finding a book of the Bible and simply working our way through it slowly but surely. And that's what we're doing with Mark's gospel right now is we're just, we've planted ourselves in Mark's gospel and we are making our way through Mark's gospel as time goes on. This is, I think, our, our 35th sermon uh, in Mark's gospel and we should be finished with it, with Mark's Gospel. Um, the Uh, month of November, November of this year. Uh, But this morning we find ourselves in Mark 9, 30 through 41. And once you turn there, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we stand out of reverence, we stand out of honor and respect for the word of God, and we listen with reverence, we listen with joy to the words of our God, He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you help me as I preach, help all of us as we hear. We long for the Father to be glorified, for Jesus to be magnified, for all of us to be edified. So we ask for your help now, for the sake and glory of Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, as we've been making our way slowly through Mark's gospel, we've recently encountered a kind of Seismic shift in the theme. You'll recall that the first half of Mark's gospel is marked by this main theme of the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man of, of Daniel 7. And then in Mark chapter 8, the, the seismic shift took place. And now with Christ's identity as the Messiah well established, Mark turns to focus. On how this Messiah is a suffering Messiah. Now, he's a Messiah who's come not to be served, but to serve. How he's come not to be exalted and magnified, not at first at least, but to be executed and martyred on a Roman cross. He's come in humility to suffer for the sins of his beloved people and with that that shift in focus coincided with an additional thematic shift with Christ's sufferings as the messiah now at central focus he's also begun to tease out the calling laid upon Christ's disciples and this particular section of mark that we're looking at particularly mark 8:22 through 10:52 jesus will foretell his death three times And then follow up with these foretellings with instructions about following him as his disciples. We saw this initially in chapter 8 with Christ's first foretelling of his death and resurrection. Followed with a series of instructions about Christian discipleship. He told his followers that while the cross of salvation was being laid upon him, the cross of discipleship must be laid upon us all as his followers. To pick up our crosses, follow him into glory. Likewise, in chapter 10, Jesus will again foretell his own death and resurrection and follow it with a series of instructions about discipleship. But here in our text now, we're looking at the second foretelling, where Jesus begins with foretelling his death and resurrection and follows with a series of instructions about discipleship. Now, these destructions on discipleship will go on to verse 50 of chapter 9 here, but we're just going to take up verses 30 to 41 this morning. We'll take up verses 42 to 50 next Sunday. And as we consider verses 30 to 41 this morning, the instructions here can almost seem like, like scattered instructions, not having any one theme to kind of tie them together. One commentator, they seem like almost just like a, 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 a cup of beads spilled on the floor and just kind of scattered across the floor. And yet, there is, there is a, a theme that, that strings them together, so to speak, and it's this theme of humility. Humility. What you'll see this morning is that these particular instructions from Jesus here are all strung together by this theme of humility. It begins with Christ foretelling his death in verses 30 to 32 as he shows us that he has come to humbly suffer. And then he moves on to call his followers to humbly serve others in verses 33 to 37, and then in verses 38 to 41, he calls, to a, he calls us to a humble generosity of spirit toward others. But first, we see here how Christ has come to humbly suffer. Verse 30 tells us, that Jesus and the disciples have left the northern region of Israel, uh, the, the, the region north of Israel, and they're making their way back down south. And, and as they do so, they're passing through Galilee while on their way to Judea and to Jerusalem. And Jesus here is speaking, he's seeking some measure of privacy so that he can have some time to teach his disciples. And his, his Uh, Part of his teaching, a, a selection of his teaching is quoted here in verse 31. It says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And again, this is the second foretelling of Christ's cross in our section of text here. And as we we saw in the first foretelling of the cross in Mark 8, Jesus is using some very particular Old Testament language to speak about his Messiahship as well as his mission. As regards his Messiahship, he refers to himself as the Son of Man which is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, we see Daniel prophesy about this Messiah figure being exalted and seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all of heaven and earth and over all nations forever and ever. And he refers to this Messiah as one like a son of man. But also in Mark 8, in his first foretelling of the cross, Jesus brought together an, another Old Testament passage to bear upon his mission as the Messiah. In this, he, he welded together two Old Testament passages that no one before had put together. He, he, he brought together the Daniel 7 Son of Man passage with the Isaiah 52 and 53 suffering servant passage. Isaiah 52 and 53... Isaiah prophesied, foretold of a a figure, uh, a future figure among God's people coming to suffer, being executed on behalf of God's people so that they could be forgiven and set free from their guilt and sin. And you might even turn there to Isaiah 52 and 53. Put put a finger in Mark 9 there for a moment. Turn over to, to Isaiah 52 and 53. Because here, Jesus seems to be doing the same thing again. He clearly speaks of himself as the son of man of Daniel 7, but he also speaks of his being delivered into the hands of men to be killed. Now, this language of, of being delivered is important, and I'm going to get kind of technical here for a minute. I don't like to do this normally, but I'm going to get sort of technical here in a minute. This voice of this Greek verb translated as delivered is passive, and it. it conceals, you can see, it conceals the subject of the verb. It doesn't say who is handing the Christ over. It doesn't say who is delivering Christ into the hands of men. And that's an interesting item to note because it it appears that, that in this language, he's communicating in a way that Jews often did in those days, whenever they would speak of God's works. They would speak of God's works in what they call the divine passive. The divine passive is a way of speaking of God's works without naming God out of reverence for his name. The Jews in those days, they were often careful in the ways in which they used the names and titles of God, and sometimes that meant being scarce in speaking his name. And it seems that that's what's happening here, that he's saying that the one delivering Christ into the hands of men to be killed here is none other than God himself. And that's significant because... It is again a clear echo of Isaiah 52 and 53. If you look here at Isaiah 52 and 53, you'll see that the execution of the suffering servant is planned and accomplished by none other than God Himself. It is the will of the Lord that this happens. Look at Isaiah 53:4. He was smitten by God and afflicted. By whom will this suffering servant be smitten and afflicted? By God. Look down at Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Whose whose will is it for this suffering servant to be crushed? The Lord's. Well, why would the Lord do that? Why would he actively plan and carry out such a horrendous thing? Why would he deliver the, the Son of Man into the hands of men to be killed? Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why the Lord planned and executed the Christ's execution to pay for the debt of our sins, to pay the penalty of divine judgment that we deserve because of our sins so that we could be forgiven and freed from our guilt forever before God. And just to be clear, in case you think that this was the Father's plan and that Christ was was unwillingly forced into it or just tepidly agreed to it, notice here that Christ knows full well what is going to happen in Jerusalem. He foretells his cross here. He knows what's coming. And notice he's still heading there nonetheless. He's passing through Galilee. He's not staying. Capernaum has been his his kind of home base of operations throughout Mark. But but here in Mark 9, 10, and 11, we see Mark recording the sort of movement of Jesus and his disciples toward Jerusalem. Where he knows he will be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. As Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He knew full well what was waiting for him in Jerusalem, but he gladly, intentionally, humbly made his way there. And why would he do that? As Paul says of Jesus in Philippians 2, he did it as an act of humble service. He did it because he is the humble servant, the humble servant who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came as the lowliest, most humble servant of God and man and gave his life on a Roman cross. Then as our passage moves on, we're instructed by Jesus here to to follow him in this path he's laid out for us in humble service. With me next at how the Christian is called to humbly serve. Verse 33 says that they they arrived in Capernaum here. They're stopping on their way to Judea, as we'll see in in Mark 10. But but while in Capernaum, they're possibly staying at Peter's house. And and after they arrive, Jesus asks them a question. And it seems like it's maybe the exact question that they didn't want him to ask. It's a pretty uncomfortable question. So often Jesus will ask really uncomfortable questions because he doesn't want us to be comfortable in our sin. He didn't want the disciples here to be uncomfortable in their pride and arrogance. And so he asks, what were you discussing on the way? In verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They didn't want to answer. Because they seem to have known something of what Jesus would have to say about this. They knew at least that he would have been displeased about the content of their conversation. However, it seems he already knew, he probably overheard them on the way. Seems that it may have been a pretty lively argument. Voices might have been raised. And before you judge the disciples too harshly based on the content of their conversation here, please understand that this issue of rank in society and in communities and whatnot was so it was so enormously important in the culture of Judaism at the time. It was very common for people living in that time, in that culture, Judaism at that time, it was very common for them to make lists in society based on level of importance and greatness, kind of hierarchical lists that, that listed out people in order of, of rank in society. There are many such lists in, uh, from this time that would you know, intentionally rank people from most important to least important, from least to greatest, from greatest to least. There were lists about uh, you know, the seating order, what the seating order would be in paradise. There were lists of, of uh, positions of authority or, 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 or importance in, in Jewish society at that time. It started with the priests and then it moved on to all the Levites and then on and on after that and rank of importance from there. There were lists for how people ought to order their seating in worship events and in feasts based on level of greatness. There were lists for so many things. And and in many ways, these disciples, not to excuse them, they were men of their time. They took this kind of thing in with their mother's milk. I I once heard Tim Keller say that culture is kind of like rain. You know, you can put on rain boots and a raincoat and carry an umbrella, but you're still probably going to get wet, and it seems that, these disciples here, uh, you know, and they're fighting, quarreling, arguing about who's the greatest, that the reins of ranking based on greatness had evidently fallen on them and gotten them somewhat wet in some measure. You know, they're arguing here. If Jesus is the Messiah, you can, you can think about, you can even imagine what they're arguing. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the son of man of Daniel 7, if he's going to be throated, uh, uh, enthroned upon the, the throne of his father David, well, we better figure out who among us is going to be at his right hand and who's going to be at his left and what the seating order is going to be at, at the banquet table and who's going to sit where at the table, so to speak. You can imagine them arguing about this. And perhaps we wouldn't be caught dead having a conversation like that. You know, Our particular culture is not typically fond of rank, ranking and, 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 or hierarchy in any way. However, we are likely to take in other kinds of self-importance and, and self-centeredness that are a little, a little more culturally acceptable. I, I saw uh, not too long ago Kim Kardashian she was reflecting on her, her, her recent divorce, and you know, we don't know the circumstances, all the circumstances surrounding her divorce, so I'm not making a definitive judgment about it up here. But her comments On her divorce, display this radical kind of self centeredness and self importance, this radical kind of self centeredness and self importance of our age. It's it's a premium example of the prevailing attitude of our age that we just take in, that we see everywhere television, movies, social media. It's so culturally acceptable. In an interview recently, she said this She said, For so long, I did what made other people happy. And in the last few years, I decided I'm going to make myself happy. And that feels really good. No duh. And and even if that created changes and caused my divorce, I think it's important to be honest with yourself about what really makes you happy. I've chosen myself. I think it's okay to choose you. My 40s are about being team me. What is that, but a, a, a 21st century Western way of asserting our own greatness and importance? And perhaps you know you wouldn't even be caught putting it in the exact language as Kim Kardashian here, at least not as bluntly. But the reality is that, that that heart attitude and disposition is still in each one of us. each of us in our flesh are all about team me. Each of us in our flesh prioritize above all else what makes me happy, even to the detriment of those around us. Each of us in our flesh, we're all about ourselves as numero uno. That's why we get angry when someone else cuts us off in traffic. That's why you're so enraged when you're, you find your kids too demanding. That's why its why you... you we're willing to serve our fellow church members so long as it's convenient or meets all of our preconditions. It's why we see and get angry when we think that our coworkers are not carrying their weight or not uh, you know, doing as much as us in our workload. It's, it's in each one of us, and it will come out even if it's just in ways that are culturally appropriate. And all of this is, of course, so at odds with what Jesus had just told his disciples about himself as the suffering servant. He hadn't come to be served, but to serve. He hadn't come in greatness, but in humility. He hadn't come to glorify himself, but to give himself as a ransom for us and to trust his Father to take care of the glory. No one's more humble than Jesus. No one serves like Jesus has served, and he calls us as his followers to pick up our crosses and follow him in this path of humility and service. He tells us. Essentially what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, we read from earlier, starting a little bit earlier, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ calls us to that kind of mind, not to a a, a me first, team me kind of mind. I'm going to make myself happy kind of mind, but the mind of a humble and lowly servant. He says, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Now, that's quite astounding because it's, it's fascinating. He doesn't tell them that their desire and greatness and glory is completely misguided and stupid. He just redefines it for them. He turns it on its head. He says, if you want glory, if you want to be great, here's how you do it. Treat others as more significant than yourself. Put others, and, and not just others, everyone before yourself so that you're last... Serve others in humility and loneliness. That's what greatness in the kingdom of God is. That's the path to glory. And then he takes it a step further when he says that that the great one must be a servant of all. He means all. Even the very least in the world's eyes. Serving even those who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. Serving the absolutely powerless. He took a child. And put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now understand, people often misunderstand this. He's not saying that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven here, you must become like a little child. He'll say that later, but he's not saying that here yet. He's saying here, That greatness in his kingdom is found in serving the very least, the very least being children. You need to understand that in those days, children were not valued. In those days, and in that culture, they were esteemed so lowly in those cultural rankings that we were talking about earlier. They had high infant mortality rates, they were an agricultural culture, young children didn't you know, contribute in any meaningful sense economically. And so with all that, children, they were peripheral. You've probably heard, you know, people say of older generations that children were to be seen, not heard. I heard someone say once of, of this first century Jewish culture that children were to be neither heard nor seen. They were unimportant. They were powerless. They had no status. They could do nothing for you in return. They had nothing to give you in return. And yet Jesus here says that his disciples Are to give themselves away to, to humbly serve little ones such as this. It's not socially advantageous to do so, but he's saying, give yourself away to little ones such as this. And that in so doing, Jesus is saying, you're serving me. And not just me, but him who sent me. What a wonderful promise. When we serve the least in our world, Jesus says we are serving him. When, you wel- when we welcome the least, it's counted as welcoming Jesus himself. The least in our society are like masks that Jesus is wearing, hiding among us. And when we serve them, it is rendered as service to Christ himself. When those of you who are, who are fostering Welcome little children into your home in the name of Jesus. Jesus counts it as if you are welcoming him into your home. Parents, when you get up to comfort a frightened child in the middle of the night with gentleness and grace in the name of Jesus, it's counted as if you are comforting Christ. Church, remember, when you you serve in the nursery, And in kids' ministry, and you pray for these little ones and hold them and teach them and comfort them and is counted as service to Jesus. And I don't mean to romanticize this. It's not easy. Serving those who can do nothing for you, serving those with many needs, it's it's often so demanding. It requires sacrifice. It requires time and energy and resources. It can be so exhausting. And so often, one of the issues that people have with humbly serving as Jesus calls us to here is you know, concern for themselves, who's going to take care of me? If I don't take care of myself, if I don't look out for myself, if I give myself away, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to do it? This is partly why we have to remember how we've been so well served by our God and Jesus Christ. Remember who He is for us. Remember what he's done for us. Remember that Christ has already so served you. He's poured out his life unto death for you. God sent his son to die so that you might have eternal life. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're going to be well taken care of for all eternity. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to be team you because God is already all the team you you need in Christ. And he'll take better care of you than you could ever take of yourself. So you're freed up to, to give yourself away, to serve your family, your church, your neighbors, to serve the least and those who can do nothing for you and those that society would typically call draining or non-contributors. You can serve children in parenting and fostering and adopting and in kids' ministry and you can let God take care of being Team you. He's better at it anyways. Speaking of Team U, as we Continue to move on through our passage, we see another example of the disciples being team me or or team us in a self-centered way. So we look at verses 38 to 41. We see how the Christian is called to humble generosity. By generosity, I don't mean generosity in terms of like giving money away, although that's good too. Uh, I mean having a generosity of spirit, a kind of open-heartedness toward others, a magnanimity toward others. You'll see what I mean. At some point after Jesus' teaching about humility and service, among his disciples, John came to Jesus and he said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. As we've seen throughout Mark, Jesus is casting out demons, continually demonstrating this unparalleled authority over spiritual darkness. And we even saw back in Mark 6 that Jesus grants the 12 power to cast out demons in their ministry. And as you would expect, there there were some who took notice of this throughout Israel, especially since exorcism was so highly sought after in those days. And it seems that at least one person had decided to start casting out demons using the name of Jesus. Now, it's ironic that the disciples would take such an issue with this because, as we saw last week, they... We're literally just uh, unable to cast out a demon in the previous passage. But, but they do take issue with this. And, and we should say that, that it doesn't seem that this person was using Jesus' name in the sort of superstitious way. You, know, we, you see that in Acts 19, it doesn't go well. But, but it seems that whatever, whoever is doing this here, that they were casting out demons in Jesus' name, they were doing it with some sort of genuine faith, some sort of genuine trust in Jesus' name. And yet John and the other disciples didn't like it. They tried to put a stop to it. They tried to you know, police this man and his, his ministry. Why? Well, John says, because he's not following us. He's not part of our inner circle. He's not part of this particular group. He hasn't joined and entered our ranks. He won't, be, he won't be seated at that table in the messianic kingdom with us. He has no right to be doing what you commissioned us to do, Jesus, because he's not one of us seems that this misguided pride that marked the disciples' discussion about who was the greatest also marked their attitude toward those outside their group. They possessed such an inflated sense of self, such an elitist spirit, that, that anyone out there doing this work but who didn't belong to the group must join the group or be stopped. Look at Jesus' instruction, verses 39 and 40. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus instructs the disciples to not police others ministering in his name. The question is not whether or not this man belonged to their group, but whether or not this man trusted in Jesus. And even if the man had not yet fully understood Jesus or what he was about, The fact was that he sought to genuinely minister in Christ's name. This meant that he was on the same team. Even if he doesn't have all of his doctrinal ducks in a row. Even if he's not part of the inner circle or group. If he's under the the banner of the name of Jesus, same team. And there's a valuable application for us here. as We consider how we're to interact with, with other branches of Christ's church today. The kingdom of God is, is much larger than any one church or denomination or tradition. And yet this, this you know, often prideful attitude of Christians and churches today can, can so much reflect the behavior of the disciples here than the words of Jesus. It's an old joke that kind of illustrates the point. There's a man who's walking down a bridge one day and he came across another man who's about to jump off the bridge. So the first man says to him, Stop! Don't jump! You, know, you have so much to live for! And the second man says, like what? So he tells him, he says, well, are you religious? The second man says, yes. And the first man says, oh, good, so am I. Are you Christian or Buddhist? And the man says, I'm a Christian. He says, oh, good, so am I. Uh, are, are you Catholic or Protestant? He says, Protestant. Are you Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptist? He says, I'm Baptist. He says, oh, me too. Are you General Baptist or Reformed Baptist? He says, I'm Reformed Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist 1644 confession or Reformed Baptist 1689 confession? He says, Reformed Baptist 1644, and the second man, he pushes him off the bridge, and he says, die, heretic. (laughs) And it's obviously, like, really extreme, uh But it's also funny because it it actually illustrates, even if in an extreme way, the the disposition that we've all seen that marks Christ's disciples toward one another far too often, especially in our social media age. The amount that, that we Christians bicker and argue with and condemn other Christians because of our differences is tragic. Especially since the Lord said it would be by our love for one another that the world would recognize that we belong to him. And we can give so many nuances to this. I I know I I know that not everyone who uses Jesus' name actually belongs to him. I know that there are those in the world who use the name of Jesus but are talking about a completely different Jesus, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the disposition of our hearts toward those who genuinely belong under the banner of Jesus' name, even if they're not a part of our particular group or church or theological tribe. So Jesus is teaching here that that his kingdom is bigger than our group or our church or our tribe, and he's teaching us here that our hearts ought not be haughty and prideful toward others who belong to him, but instead we ought to be marked by a a big-heartedness, an open-heartedness, a humble generosity and acceptance and tolerance and embrace of other brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does that look like? There's a number of ways we can answer that question. Negatively speaking, based on what we see in our passage here, we know what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like going around and policing the ministry and work and doctrines of, of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And just consider, maybe you don't need to get in that argument on the internet about Calvinism and Arminianism. Maybe. it's my experience, those are rather fruitless anyways. Maybe you don't need to get... Maybe you don't need to comment on that person's Facebook post about baptism. Maybe you don't need to comment on that church's ministry philosophy across town. Maybe you can just celebrate the name of Jesus being magnified by others, even if by people with whom you differ. And put positively, we should, we should pray for other churches and Christians and ministries, even partner with them when it's within the realm of possibility force. You know, I actually, I love the way the, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession puts it. In chapter 26, article 14, listen to what it says. Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. They must also, at every opportunity, within the limits of their stations and callings, exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every church. Also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, for their growth in love, and for mutual edification. It says we we should embrace other Christians and other churches in prayer and, when feasible, in partnership. That's why we pray for other local churches here on Sunday mornings, monthly. And when we pray, it's why we pray for churches that even are not exactly like us, for churches that belong to different branches of Christ's universal church. We pray for, for other Baptists, of course. We also pray for Grace Brethren churches and Pentecostals and Anglicans and Presbyterians. We, we pray for churches of diverse ethnicity. We pray for churches with many members, those with few churches. We, we partner with other Christians and churches and in missions and in church planting and in mercy endeavors, and it's right that we should do so. We should even do so at every opportunity within the limits of our stations and callings. As we give to other churches and Christians, and we receive from other Christians and churches, we have this precious promise with which Christ closes our passage this morning. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I've got to tell you, I... I, I really struggle with seeing how this verse fit into our passage this past week. But but if you take a step back and look at it, not just in light of verses 38 to 41, but also 33 to 37, it it does tie into this overarching theme of serving and embracing others with humility and generosity. When any of Christ's people do something as small as give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, let alone cast out demons in his name, Christ sees and will reward such service because he counts it as service to himself. But what seems so particularly astounding to me about this verse here is the language that Christ uses concerning his disciples. How he speaks of his disciples as belonging to him. How sweet is that? That's how he associates with his idiot disciples. And grace and humility, he, he associates them with himself. When I first read this passage last week, I initially just thought John was so arrogant. Speaking of this man casting out demons as not following us. Us. As if you deserve to speak of you and Jesus as being in the same league. And yet, I'm also struck by the grace of Jesus to speak of him and, and the disciples with himself as us. And of the disciples as belonging to Jesus. I don't think I'm at all stretching the meaning of this verse here to say that the reason Jesus words this phrase in this particular way is to give the disciples assurance that they belong to him, that they are his. He's their shepherd, their savior, their Lord, their friend, that their position and closest to him is secure. How comforting must that be for his disciples who keep making blunder after blunder here, who who hear Christ is correcting again and again, to hear Christ say, you belong to me. You belong to me. And what a comfort to us, because we're Christ's disciples who keep making blunder after blunder. We're, like the disciples here, so proud, so often the captain of the team on Team Me. So often lacking generosity of spirit toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, casting judgments that aren't ours to make, policing others when it's none of our concern, and yet Christ tells us, you belong to me. You're so loved, you're so delighted, and you've been bought with a price, the price of my own precious blood. When you could do nothing for me, when it was not socially advantageous at all for me, I still came for you, I gave myself for you, and now you belong to me. And that's humbling, it's comforting, increases confidence. It makes us invincible. And in being invisible, it, 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 it makes us all the more ready to serve and embrace others with generosity. And with the same kind of generosity with which we've been served and embraced by our Christ. And so we are called to humility here. But Jesus has already paved the path for us in his cross and his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, for its challenges and comforts, and pray that you would use it now to conform our hearts and our lives more closely to the Christ that it reveals. We pray that as we come to the table to receive the bread and to receive the cup that you would seal this word upon our hearts that we would behold here in this table the Christ who came as a humble servant and suffered for us. And with it, would you strengthen us to follow in his footsteps of humility and suffering and service and generosity. All for the sake and glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord, we pray.